comfort one another is really sort of the theme of the text that we're going to look at this morning from 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. And uh, here's another thing I'd like to encourage you with. Please take out your Bibles. Uh, You're going to need your Bibles this morning to follow along, and I'm going to do my best to try to... uh, to stay on target so you can see where we're going and how we get these these truths that come from God's word. By way of introduction to our text, I'd like to very briefly, if you would, talk about the rise and the decline of America. There has never been, in my opinion, a people more blessed in all of history than our generation in America. The birth of our nation was tenuous at best, but God faithfully propagated, protected, and provided for this country to serve his purposes. He worked revivals that transformed churches and communities. He united a diverse people from all over the globe in ways that can only be explained as miraculous. He has seen us through a civil war, two world wars, and many costly undeclared wars. He has brought us through economic recessions and depressions. He has given us a government designed to protect the civil and the religious rights of all the people. He has empowered America to defend other nations who have been threatened by evil despots, as well as to provide food and relief uh, for the poor of the world. He has enabled our country to make incredible advances in technology so that man could walk on the moon and could communicate from world, around the world through uh, satellites, as well as to develop these incredible mir- miraculous uh, medicines as well as uh, unthought-of surgeries. He has prospered uh, Christian churches and missions organizations to send out the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And he has blessed our nation with unparalleled prosperity and uh, opportunity. I believe the Lord has truly answered the prayer of the song that we sing, God Bless America. He has done so. But things are quickly changing, especially here at home. Our nation is rapidly decaying and declining. We have rejected the God who birthed us and bore us up in times of adversity. Our prosperity has brought about inordinate pride and materialism. Our work ethic suffers. It suffers because there's become a growing sense of entitlement from government subsidies and more and more taxation to support an uncontrolled budget appetite. We're dumping our moral sewage around the world while we religiously try to save the planet from environmental climate change. Homosexuality and redefining marriage takes us back to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is so ironic in my mind that America 
is legalizing drugs while trying to close its borders to illegal aliens who are coming here to find a better way of life than where they are under the, the power of cartels who are selling their drugs here in America to an ever-growing population. Our civil and religious rights are being threatened by litigation from atheistic uh, special interest groups as well as by socialists who insist on things like political correctness. And the church is being marginalized by pragmatism and relativism. There are rogue terrorist nations, and you've heard about this, and movements who say they are coming our way. They are determined to plant their flag on the lawn of the White House. Political corruption and abuse of power by an expanding government is spreading distrust and pessimism among us. Racial strife continues to lie or bubble just below the surface of our nation and it threatens to divide us. We are inundated with an avalanche of troubling news, not just here at home, but around the world. Have you been listening lately? Russia's invasion of Ukraine, an Islamic caliphate being formed in Syria, Iraq, and other countries surrounding the Mideast, YouTube videos showing graphic beheadings, persecutions of innocent men, women, and children, especially Christians. We hear of genocidal wars that are destroying several African nations, not to mention the expansion of of an Ebola uh, epidemic. So let me ask a question. So how is this working for you? So when you hear all that, and you do, you have to, how are you processing that? Are your hopes that somebody will come along and, and change all this? Are your hopes in politicians or political parties? What is our hope this morning? How do we hope to face the days we're in and even with the possibility of even, if you would, even more dangerous days ahead? How are you processing that? Well, welcome to life in the last days. The Apostle Paul wrote to encourage and give hope to his generation as well as ours. He knew they needed comfort and consolation and he knew that they could only find that comfort in the one who was called the God of all comfort. The Bible also calls our God the Good Shepherd. He comforts his flock as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we learn through the scriptures that our God desires and delights in coming alongside of his people to help, to comfort, and uh, console them, even as a mother hen. Sort of uh, 
uh, shelters her chicks under her wings. Or even as a parent snuggles alongside of their frightened children in the midst of a uh, threatening storm. But how does God comfort his people? Let me give you three important points as we head into our text. First, God comforts us with his Holy Spirit. Jesus reassured his troubled disciples, and the same would be his assurance for us today. When he says, I pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, so he might able, uh, abide with you forever. Well, forever would include us. Therefore, when we are feeling overwhelmed in our dark circumstances, we need to remember that God is not distant, He's not disinterested. Rather, he is personally and intimately involved with us and in us. That's why we can have comfort. The Bible also says that God comforts us with his word. For example, the Lord cried out to Isaiah in one of Israel's darkest nights. And the prophet yelled out, And the Lord working through him, comfort, yes, comfort my people. He wanted them to hear a word from God that people would know, his people would know that God knew their situation. He knew the dark circumstances surrounding their nation. Therefore, the word of God offers hope and comfort to the despondent and the discouraged. Let me ask. Are you in God's word regularly? That's how we're going to find that comfort to get us through. Then there's a third way God comforts us. It is with the love and the strength of one another in Christ's church. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. If you want to look that up, please do as I read. He seems to be speaking directly to us. Certainly for those of his own day, but it certainly applies to us. Listen to this. The author says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, without compromise. For he who promised is faithful, that being Christ. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And then the last line is what's captured me. He said, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day coming. What day is that? It is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord appears to be drawing nearer and nearer With every news broadcast we hear. Now is the time. Now is the time we need and must be committed to our local church. To other Christians. To be used of God. To minister to one another. Our ministries must stir up within us courage to stand firm for Christ. 
and to promote intimate fellowship and practical expressions of love first in the church and then overflowing into the community around us. That is how God comforts us. With his spirit, with his word, and us. The body of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11 through 11 really does speak to us. We know that the Lord has spoken to the churches of the first century. And the letter we're going to look at is to the Thessalonians. And our text this morning will address that need of being prepared. But the context for our sermon is important to understand. The church of Thessalonica had been infiltrated by false prophets, false teachers. And they sought to discredit Paul's apostolic authority and ministry. And in their attempt to discredit him, they were destroying the very hope of the church. As the church faced persecution and difficulties and tribulations for their faith, it desperately needed comfort. It needed hope to get through those days. And the church was taught by Paul to take comfort in the hope of Christ's return from heaven. But these false teachers, they question Paul's assurance That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The resurrection of the dead in Christ they called into question. And for those facing death through persecution or whatever, this was obviously discomforting. Therefore, Paul reassured the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. Those are the immediate words in the context for the text we're looking at. Please look at that with me. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with a sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. I don't know if our church is used to saying amen. But let me tell you, my friends, if you ever were to do that, when I say, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, the clouds to meet the Lord. So we will always be with the Lord. I guess that's the way you kind of prime the pump, right? But you know, when you hear these things, sometimes we just take this for granted. Think of that, friends. Whatever we're going through now that may be difficult in your personal life, our National life, it's, it's going to pale in comparison to the glory of being with Christ. You see, that is what Paul was saying. 
This is our hope, my friends. There's more than this on the other side. It's greater. And that is really what I believe the apostle is trying to do here. He wants to reassure the church uh, that it is not forgotten in these days. That there is a plan. There is purposes that God has for these days. And we are part of his plan. He's part, he cares about us. He will see us through. He's not distant. And he's not disinterested. Followers of Christ then and now need to be awakened out of our slumber, our evangelical, comfortable life. And look at the world around us and to be exhorted to live godly lives as we near the end days. So that's why I have selected this passage Let's look at it. For those who don't have your Bible, I put this on here as well. Let's read 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Now concerning the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything, we would say, more written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware That the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security. And then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you? You are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light. Children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Some sleep at church. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. I have the privilege and the responsibility as a teacher of God's word to say, let's unpack that. Let's see what Paul meant by these words. We want to look at the day of the Lord that he mentions. Now, from very early times in the church, the church has believed in what we say, the imminent coming of Christ. But what is meant by his imminent return? That word imminent really has two sides of explanation. Very similar and yet unique. It's like two sides to the same coin. 
One is that the day of the Lord is sure and certain to come. That's one side of the coin. Flip it over and it says that the day of the Lord is that it can come at any moment. So it is sure to come and it could come at any moment is what you would get. However, when the scriptures talk about the imminent coming of Christ, meaning that it could come at any moment, that doesn't mean that there won't be recognizable biblical signs that precede his coming. So the point is, Christians have had and still should hold to this expectation of Christ's imminent return, that it is certain to come, And it could be at any moment. If you believe that's true, then our lives should be lived differently. That's the exhortation of Paul. When we talk about the day of the Lord, what does that mean? Throughout the scriptures, the day of the Lord refers to the day of Christ's return in wrath and in judgment. It is that climactic day of righteous judgment to recompense the wicked, but also to reward the righteous. The day of the Lord is also referred to in the Bible as the great and the awesome day of the Lord. Or the great day of the Lord. Or the day of redemption. Or the day of Jesus Christ. And in some places it just says, the day. The day of the Lord. And this day will be characterized by spiritual darkness, moral decadence, lawlessness, and worldwide trials and tribulations. Paul tells us in Romans 2 that those whose hearts are hardened and rebellious to God are storing up for themselves wrath for that great day. But for the righteous, for the church, the promise of Christ's return gives us reason to hope and to have courage to persevere until that great day. Christ's return should cause the impenitent to repent and the righteous to hope. And certainly, that is what we wish. The Bible also talks about the day of the Lord as if it has two epics or two dimensions. He identifies these, if you would, times and seasons as a way of understanding these last days. What did the church need to know in those days? Well, like most of us, they wanted more detailed information about the return of Christ. Paul, however, has told him in our text, saying, you don't need to know more about the times and the seasons. You know enough. He seems to be quoting from Jesus just before he ascended into heaven in Acts 1-7. Here's what Jesus said as he's ready to blast off. He said, it is not for you to know times and seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. Times. 
Times refer to the chronology or the sequence of events. It's not for you to know exactly how all of these things will come in order and in the events of history. And then he says seasons. Seasons is really the quality or the condition of those days before Christ comes. And wouldn't we all like to know more about these things? I would. But our faith must cling to what we already have heard and believe to be true. And not become discouraged or disheartened because of what we don't know about the future. Isn't it interesting interesting that Christ has chosen to reveal only what is needed for us to have hope and to persevere and to live godly lives before his return? Jesus said in Mark 13, But of that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And then he gives this admonition. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. So one thing I could say we need to be encouraged to do is take heed, be aware, and what else does he say? Pray. If you're burdened by what's happening in our country, don't pin all of your hope on another party coming into power. Or a new man. Though that might be a welcome change. No, our hope is never in man. It is only in Christ. And the church in the last days needs to learn to be a prayer church. A church of diligent prayer. When I go to China, (laughs) they're under persecution in their own way. They have a lot of liberties now. But there's no mistake. They understand what it means to be a Christian in that kind of of a culture, that kind of a country. The thing that they do, as good as any or better than what we do here, is pray. Before I preach or teach there, they will gather about a half hour beforehand... And they will put some mats on the floor just before where I preach. And they are on their knees in a circle praying for the gospel. I'm not suggesting that it's hard enough for some of you to get here in time anyway. But that's another way of saying they are ready. They're serious about prayer. If, if you said, hey, I've got, a, a, I've got a burden, I've got a concern. You know what? Those people would not uh, uh, be satisfied with a prayer request on a letter. They'll come to you. They'll, come, they'll gather around you. They'll lay hands on you. They just go for it. Because they understand the severity of what it means or the, the commitment of what it means to be a Christian. So we need to pray. Paul also speaks about two humanities. So in my text as I was studying, I found that Paul was playing parallel or contrasting ideas for us. And when you start to see these comparisons in, in, uh, uh, in doublets, if you would, it really helps the text come alive. It did for me. There are two humanities that he refers to as the children of the night or, if you would, the children of the darkness. And then there's the children of the light and the children of the day. And uh, these humanities are very different. Those whose father 
is the devil and those whose father is God. Though the children of the devil are called children of the night or children of the darkness. And prior to the day of the Lord, he tells us they will be saying, oh, there is peace, there is security. That's what they'll be saying. And their confidence will be in the repeated promises of politicians, global powers promising peace through political negotiations and military power that comes from the alliance of nations. And the children of darkness and light are characterized by slumbering and drunkenness. That means they love the darkness and the deeds of the darkness. They drink in the dark and eventually slumber in drunkenness, unaware of the events that shall bring about their own judgment. Likely they will be a low information population, consumed only by their gaining and securing their personal peace and prosperity. And their appetite for things like alcohol, drugs, and entertainment will dull their senses to the gospel and to what's going on around them. He says the sons of darkness will be eating, drinking, and marrying as they did in the days of Noah. This means that they went on living in their sin, rejecting the warnings of the prophets of God, that wrath was soon coming, judgment was coming. And even though we do not know the time of his return, it is no excuse for the church to be caught off guard. We need to be ready. Paul distinguishes between you brothers and they, the sons of darkness. He emphasizes between us and them, between light and darkness. Just as the scriptures talk about two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem, between two humanities, as we've mentioned, as well as two destinies, which we will bring up. When the day of the Lord comes suddenly upon the children of the night, Paul is saying they shall not escape. They shall not escape God's wrath and they shall be quickly destroyed. Wow. These are sobering things, are they not? How often do we talk about that? Maybe we should more. On the other hand, the children of light or the children of the day, they shall be ready. They shall be ready because they've been forewarned. They've been forewarned by the scriptures that the day of the Lord is imminent. These are the true followers of Christ. They are those of the light of the world and the life of men. Paul speaks to the church with the imagery of a sentry or of soldier that's keeping guard of his fortress. The redeemed are also called the sons of light because they are not in the night or the darkness of this world. The regenerate Heart loves the light of God's word, whereas the unregenerate heart loves the darkness because his deeds are evil. The expectations of Christ's return should stir us, encourage us to walk as children of light, being distinct from the children of darkness. The key question that we need to ask ourselves is, Who are you identified with? 
Christ or the world? We could say, who's your daddy? Who's your father? He tells us, let us watch. Let us not sleep. Let's keep on the alert. Let us not get drunk. Let us not be intoxicated with the things of the world. Instead, we should be sober, fully aware, and alive. Paul seems to be saying to the church, as did the Apostle Peter, that the church, knowing these things, should live lives that are godly. 2 Peter 3.11 says this. Listen to this as I read it. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will meet, melt with fervent heat. What, what the scriptures are saying, knowing that he's coming, would that not promote with us a desire to live a godly life as an example in the world of darkness as well as to glorify Christ in the darkness well Paul gives us some sobering thoughts about some of the characteristics of children of the night or the the condition of the world uh, before the coming of Christ in 2 Timothy chapter 3 Verse 1 through 50. Let me read it to you quickly. He said, but know this. That in the last days perilous times will come. Really? For men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Boasters. Proud. Blasphemers. Disobedient to parents. Unthankful. Unholy. Unloving. Unforgiving. Slanders. Without self-control. Brutal. Does that fit any of the news? Brutal. Despisers of good. Traitors. Headstrong. Haughty. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. Says Paul. Yes and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. I hate to read it but I'm going to. Will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in these things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now Paul gives us two warnings, if you would. Those warnings are that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Those were words that were spoken by prophets as well as our Lord Jesus. A thief comes when he's less expected and often comes in ways that he's undetected. We must guard our homes, guard our lives. We must protect the gospel. Jesus said that these days will be flooded with false prophets, deceivers. 
Also, he says that the church will be, should be forewarned that the day of the Lord will come like a woman in travail or a woman about ready to give birth. Before that final day, prophetic signs and threatening world events will come and they will be fulfilled with greater frequency and intensity. As the day draws near, the media will have little good news. It will seem like all the media can report is impending wars, natural disasters, food shortages, riots, plagues, persecutions, and genocide. Please tell the church, be ready, be awake, be sober. The day of the Lord coming upon you like labor pains. Well, I've never given birth to children. But my wife did. I went to Lamaze class, being this dutiful guy to figure out how, what my part could be in that thing. And I took notes. I did everything they wanted. They said one thing the husband could do is make sure that his wife had her suitcase out, ready to go. And so when we got home, we were, she was, she'd been pregnant for about three months. I said, you've got to get that suitcase ready. She says, well, well done. We, we got a long time. I said, get it started because I got to know that if I got responsibilities, I got to get you there with that suitcase. Okay. Also in one of my classes, the nurse said, you know, dads, it'd be a good thing since you're going to be in the delivery room. You know, one of the things you should have is a, a father's bag. I go, what's a father's bag? She goes, oh, that's for you. And I said, what do you put in there? She said, well, I put granola bars. You know, because you're going to get hungry. And she says, and also get a a soft rubber ball. What are you going to do with a soft rubber ball? She says, well, when your wife is is struggling and so forth, you take that rubber ball and you rub it on her neck and on her back. I go, oh, she'll like that. Oh, that's one way you can help calm her down. So... About six months later, one night, my wife says, call the doctor. He's got contractions for about three minutes, and we got to go there. I, I want to look like I'm in control because I went to Lamaze class, for heaven's sake. So I get on the phone, very calm and collected, and I dial, and I get a nurse on the other end, and I said, hello, this is Don Smith, Ray Smith's son. And the nurse said, who's Ray Smith? And I go, well, that's my dad. Well, let me tell you, my dad had never been to Illinois. He has, no one knows him in Illinois except me. So when she was sort of nonplussed by it, I said, oh, never, never mind. My wife is going to have a baby and I'm going to bring her right now. And she said, Mr. Smith, bring her on. We'll be ready for her. So I get there, you know, I get myself all scrubbed up, get myself my scrubs on, and I go in there. And, uh, you know, there's my wife, and she's these pains are getting closer, and there's more pain going on there. And uh, after a little while, it's starting to get, I get hungry, because this is a lot of work. <laughs> and so I reach in my father's bag, and I start munching away on a granola bar. And my wife looks at me, and she says, That nauseates me. (laughs) She said, get it out of here. Oh, okay. Strike one thing from the father's bag. 
So I thought, well, she's probably needing that soft white or that soft sponge ball, right? So I get it out and she's looking at me like, what are you doing? She's grimacing. She's trying to get this thing on. And I'm back here trying to roll this thing around here. She said, stop it. Get me drugs. I need drugs. (laughs) I don't need a ball rolling around in my neck. So, okay. Now I was prepared for that event, right? Well, we had the baby. I have three girls. I was ready. Uh, But that's what Paul's exhorting us to. Be ready for these events. You need your father's bag. You need your suitcase. You need to be ready for this event. It's going to be a great event. But it'll be surrounded with some pain and some potentially difficult days. That's what the Lord is saying to us who live in this day. And I think this is pretty obvious. There are two destinies. We've already alluded to it. There are those who are the children of darkness. They're also referred to as the children of wrath by Paul in Romans. These are people who have rejected the gospel and they are living under condemnation. These are people who have rejected warnings of the gospel, even as they did in the days of Isaiah and Ezekiel. There were prophets in those days, and guess what they said? Security and peace. They were saying, don't worry what the biblical prophets are saying. They're talking about judgment. We're telling you, don't panic, don't sweat it. There's going to be all kinds of uh, security for you and, uh, and prosperity. There are prosperity gospel preachers even today who will dare not say the things that you hear from this pulpit. <laughs> and you should be grateful for that. But we're the children of the light and we are destined for glory. Can you believe that? Us? Look at us. I mean, which of us deserve this? None. Jesus in Revelation 22, 20 says, Surely, certain, I am coming quickly. That was over 2,000 years ago. The cock is counting. And the apostle John said, Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, that should be the response of ours. He also gives us an admonition to wear protective armor. He says, put on the breastplate of faith and love. We are dressed in Christ. Here he is asking for us to put the breastplate of Christ on our hearts. To protect our faith and to protect our love for him and his word and his people. He also tells us that we are to put on the helmet of hope. The helmet of hope is to protect our minds and our inclinations so that we let not the days destroy our faith. Let not the days overwhelm us. We were not appointed for wrath. But what does he say? God appointed us to obtain salvation. 
That's what he appointed for. That's what he ordained for us. You could do a study in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15, about God's appointing us to salvation. Won't take the time to do that. But you will see that the salvation you've obtained has come because God ordained it. It's a work of God, my friends. He initiates it, he works it, and he will complete it. So that if God ordained our salvation, will he not also preserve our salvation? Will he not preserve the saints who enter into difficult days? Doctrine is practical. Now comes his concluding exhortations. I don't need notes for this. In light of everything I've said, you could be listening to me and say, wow, I don't like to think about those days, Pastor. You know, the, Wow, those are going to be difficult days, hard days. They could be. But you're not listening to the apostle. We are the children of light. We are ordained to receive salvation why? What for? So we shall be with him forever? Yes. So he exhorts us to do things. So in light of everything I said, encourage one another. What should the church be doing? Encouraging each other. Not tearing down each other. Encouraging each other. Coming alongside each other in your times of adversity, your times of need. This is when the church could shine as the children of the light. We are here to be of comfort to one another. If you come alongside those who are hurt, the people who have difficulty, we come alongside. You're free to, uh, to be a person who has need in the church. You're free to confess your sins and repent. There's forgiveness here. There's grace here. We come alongside of sinners. But he also says, build up one another. And that's exactly why I began by saying there's two things I want to see and encourage you this morning. Please encourage one another. And build up one another by words of affirmation, comfort, kindness. Build yourself up by the learning of God's word. Be prepared for what's ahead. Do you know biblical doctrine well enough to recognize unsound doctrine? Could you refute a cult? Could you refute a false doctrine that is going to come upon your children and your grandchildren? I mean, this is us. This is, not, this is, this is who we are. This is what we've got to arise to the occasion. So Christians... Don't be discouraged. Be built up in Christ and his word. Father, thank you for your word. May we be encouraged and built up. Now prepare our hearts to receive what Jesus gave to us until he returns. That incredible meal of the bread and the cup. Bless your people as we take of it now. In Jesus' name, amen.